Would you please join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we're grateful that we can gather this day and just cease from our work and be together as a new covenant people to be a blessing to one another and love one another as you have loved us as you showed us last week. And we just ask, Lord, that you would speak new truths into our hearts, help us to see you anew, that we may walk with freshness of the good news of Jesus Christ in our day as the disciples did in theirs, that we would think your thoughts, you would give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it, and you would bend our wills to your own so that we would be this New Testament people that you've called us to be like never before. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. From 1945 to 1977, in the city of Zalna, Germany, Janez Rus hid, fearing that the Nazis would still remain in power. He hid in a farmhouse for 32 years, snuck out to steal bread for 32 years. You know, would, would steal a cow, <laughs> would do all kinds of things just to survive for 32 years. He was found out. And when he discovered that the Nazis hadn't won the war, he goes, this is wonderful. I'm so glad. I wouldn't have been caught. But there was a large supply of bread that was missing from the local grocery that he had stolen, and he got caught. He said, all those years, I never left the house. And I could only look down into the valley to see the green grass. Can you imagine not knowing the war is over? You're free as a German opposition to the Nazis. He lived for 32 years in utter fear that Hitler was still reigning. While we don't physically hide, many of us, in a spiritual sense, hide our faith and don't go further in the faith and don't show our faith wherever we're found. Well, Jesus gives us uh, a recipe today, a way that we can live confidently as Christians in the 21st century, as the disciples did in the first. How can that change in our lives. Well, last week, remember, in chapter 13, we're new covenant people, and we're to love the Lord and love one another as Christ loved us. We had that wonderful command of Christ. It's not an option. We're to love one another, and if we don't, as the 1030 Christchurch community, we're no different than the world. It's not an option for us, my friends, to love one another in a way that the world sees it, because that's the promise of God, amen? And so, with that in mind, we go into chapter 14, where Jesus is already talking about in chapter 14, he's the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through him. I have many mansions to give to you. I have a house for you, a big, big house, if you will. And so we arrive to this passage today, this love that we have for the Lord expresses itself in a life of obedience, and we're not on our own. We have the Holy Spirit to help us carry this out, and the Holy Spirit, therefore, 
when we live this life, it gets a little scary. You will find yourselves in situations where you want to speak for the Lord, where you want to do the right thing for the Lord, and you're nervous about it. You're scared, even. You don't want to be rude. You don't want to be that guy in the office, right? You want to be a fanatic. <laughs> but it's the Holy Spirit who gives us peace as we walk in obedience to him. So Christ gives us peace, and it's a different kind of peace than you've ever had before, and it's the absolute antithesis of fear. I, I want to share with you that the Bible never says we're supposed to rejoice in our fears. Okay? All right? Jesus was a man of sorrows, not a man of fear. We confuse that sometimes. The peace of Christ brings, can be enjoyed in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of times of fear. But he, he comes along and says to us that it's absolutely antithetical to fear. Here's my peace, therefore you can't be afraid. <laughs> um, that's a litmus test for you and me. Don't ever fall into the ridiculous, unbiblical test that says that a Christian always has to be happy. That's a lie. All right? It's not biblical. Jesus wasn't that way, and Jesus would have failed that test because he wasn't always happy. He was a man of sorrows. But what it does say, what the test is, if you're a Christian, is your fears will be diminishing. If you have a perfect love relationship with God, there would be no fear. If you're growing in your relationship with God, you're less afraid than you were this time last year. That's the litmus test. Jesus gives us a peace like no one else can give. And that peace will be the antithesis of fear. So what we learn in the antithesis of fear, I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles or in the back of the bulletin or in your devices to John 14, we're going to focus just on verses 26 and 27 because in this, this culture which we live in, brothers and sisters, we must be bold and loving and different than the world in that boldness. And we learn in this passage what is the opposite of fear. We also learn, too, of the counterfeits of peace that the world presents to us Oh, this is what peace really means. No, they're counterfeits. And three, we learn how Jesus gives us ultimate peace. All right? So let's look at this. First, the opposite of fear. Simply stated, the opposite of fear is peace. And that's the implication of verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Where does that fear come from? Well, very clearly, fear comes from our rebellion, our sin. We, we get it honestly, you know. We're told in the Garden of Eden that the first result of sin was fear. The very first result. Okay, the very first, if we look back at Genesis 3, there's lots of ways to define sin. But one of the ways we can define it we see in the Bible is to say to God, I don't need you. Adam and Eve are in Eden. And in the Bible, it tells us every day God came and walked with them in the cool of the day. When God came near to them, they ran to him like a three-year-old runs to their dad as they come through the door at the end of the day. 
That was the language of their hearts. There was no fear at all. The language of their hearts was, if the greatest thing, if the greatest being, um, the greatest one in the universe is my friend and my, my support, what, what's there to be for me to be afraid of? If God is for us, who can be against us? That was the language of their hearts. And the moment they decided that they knew better than God, God had told them not to eat of this tree. You can eat any of the 100,000 trees in Eden. But this one tree, they thought to themselves, well, that's an unfair infringement on our personal independence and freedom. We want to eat of that tree. And the minute they decided that they knew better than God, they were saying, by that action, I don't need you. And the moment you think you know better, the moment you say, I don't need you, is the moment that any relationship is broken. And instantly we're told that they were naked and ashamed. They felt vulnerable, exposed, and defenseless. We learn Genesis 3, as soon as God showed up, Adam runs and jumps into the hydrangea bush. Right? And he says, when I heard you come near, I was afraid. Right? There it is. Fear. And what the Bible teaches at this point is absolutely a profound analysis of our condition today. The Bible says the lie in the serpent in the garden was if you move away from God, from God, you move away from fear. The serpent says you're not free to be yourself. You're under his thumb. The Bible shows us when you move away from God, you're not done with fear. You actually discover fear. You learn what fear really is. Fear works opposite of what the world might tell you. And fear gets greater as you move away from God. It's like the kid going with his dad into the super Walmart, you know, or mom, and you're, or the big target, and you're holding the kid's hand. They think they're big enough because you gave them a buck to buy some candy, you know, and they're thinking, I'm going to get some candy. I'm going to go to the candy section right now. I can do this on my own. I don't need you, Mom. You know, and so, no, honey, that's silly. You're going to get lost in here. There's, there's dangerous people. Don't. You got to stay with Mommy. Well, all of a sudden, the kid breaks away and runs away. I'm free. I'm going to go buy a Heath bar. So they go. And, wait, they moved the candy section somewhere. You didn't used to be there. Where is it? And they can't find it. Then they remember there's kidnappers all over the place. They get scared, and they say, I want my mommy. You ever seen a kid lost in a department store? It's scary. Right? No. What's happening is the spirit of fear. It's exactly what the Bible says is the condition of every human being apart from God. Here's our problem. See, we're too small for the position that we've taken. We were built to hold hands with God in the universe. When you let go of God's hand, you are trapped by a spirit of fear. So what's the solution for the headstrong child who's entrapped by a spirit of fear? What's the solution for an employee who all of a sudden discovers that I can't do this job? That my boss is asking me to do. 
The only way to get out of the fear is to go back to the mother, go back to the father, go back to the boss, and say, I was a fool. I need you. I can't do this on my own. See that? The thing that will keep the child in fear is if he or she is still afraid of admitting to the father, admitting to the mother, admitting to the boss that they were wrong. The fear of depending on God is the one fear that is key to every other one. We have to get this down. If you can't go back to the father can't go back to the boss, if you can't go back to the mother and say, I need you, I was a fool for thinking I could do it on my own, all the other fears will run rampant in your life until the day you die. If on the other hand, you can overcome your fear by walking with the Lord, all other fears will go away. Some of you might say, well, I've never said that to God, I don't need you. But if you are like many American professing Christians and you're saying to God, you can have this part of my life, but not this part. You can have this part of my life, Lord, but not this part. You are saying to the Lord, I don't need you. No. You're going to have a spirit of fear that will continue in your life. If you keep living that way, you'll be afraid to give yourself to God all out because you look like a fanatic. You know, there's strange things in the Bible. You know, I'm not sure I believe all that. No, that's the fear that the world gives you. But when we go back to our Heavenly Father and say, I was wrong, I do need you in every aspect of my life. Won't happen overnight, probably, but by this time next year, I'll have less fear. That's number one. The opposite of fear is peace. Secondly, we, there's counterfeit peace, okay? There's, there's peace of the world gives that isn't of the Lord, because that's what Jesus says. Peace I leave with you, my own peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. There's two ways I think that the world tries to give us peace. Number one, true peace of Christ is a thoughtful peace. What do I mean by a thoughtful peace? What I mean by that is it's a, a, a thoughtful peace as I go into God's word and realize who I am in Christ. When I was a teacher and a coach, I saw over my 11 years the culture beginning to really change. And I, I taught in a community much like Avon Lake and Bay and Avon and Westlake. It was suburban, educated people, you know, want high, good standards for their kids. But what I noticed is that families were really screwed up. And they were getting increasingly so. And I just looked, looked at these, some of these kids I was coaching, and I was, uh, why don't you understand this, kid? And so I went to my colleagues, and I said, what, what do you guys do? With just, boy, when these kids grow up, it's going to be really messed up in our culture. How do you deal with this? And they say, well, we just, just ignore it. 
We don't pay attention. So you go, hear no evil, see no evil. They go, yeah. They don't pay attention to it at all. Just do your job. Shut up and do your job. And I could go to plenty of books and plenty of literary works that basically say that, <laughs> quite frankly. The peace of Christ and that Christ gives comes from opening our eyes to the truth. Christian peace arises from a greater awareness of our true condition. Are you a Christian? You've been adopted into the family. You're loved with an everlasting love. You're an heir to the throne of the universe. If you're a Christian, you know God is holy and loving and wise. He's going to deal with this messed up world. I'm not in control of it. Thank God. You know what your future is. And the more a Christian thinks about that, the more peace he gets. The world says, you want to have peace? Don't think too hard. The Christian says, no, think harder. You see the difference? Friends, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you know all these great things, then the greater your alertness will be, the greater your awareness will be, and the greater your personal peace will be. Thinking and reason can become your friend. J.C. Ryle said it this way, peace is the legacy which he alone has power to leave behind him when he left the world. All other peace beside this is a mockery and a delusion. Now, what kind of peace can the world give if it doesn't know God? Think about that. If you don't know if he is there or not, all you can do is reflect and not too much. <laughs> on the mess of this world. Because if you do, you'll see life as a terminal disease. The world's peace doesn't work, brothers and sisters. The world's peace comes from closing our eyes. The Christian peace comes from opening them to the truth. A second counterfeit peace that we see is that Christian peace is constant. The world's peace is intermittent. It's circumstantial. What's the world's peace based on? Life circumstances. You know, a really act attractive person asked you out. You got a raise. You got a promotion. These things, as wonderful as they are, are temporal. And even the most durable of them, like fog, will evaporate when the sun comes out. I mean, even the most durable ones, like a, like a good marriage, eventually will fall away. It will drive you to be crazy unless you take refuge in the peace of the Lord. Because you think the world's peace will go on forever, and it won't. Christian peace is based on things that can never change. And it's all throughout the scripture, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. What's he talking about there? When mountains get cast into the sea, everything the world's peace is based on will get moved into the sea. Your home, your livelihood, your spouse, 
All those things are moved with the mountains. But Christian peace is not based on anything that the mountains can possibly touch. Therefore, Christian peace is constant. It's relentless. It's not intermittent. We know these things are based, are not going to change when our body dies. They're not going to change when the mountains are removed. They're not going to change when the whole world is rolled up on the stage as we know it. Christian peace is like a river that never runs dry. Those are two counterfeit pieces. Don't buy them. They don't work and they don't last. So the natural question in the third point is, well, how can I get the peace of Christ? I've seen the opposite of peace, fear. I've seen the counterfeits of peace. How do you get Christ's peace? Well, the answer is you have to look at the context of John 12 to 21. <laughs> Jesus is talking to his disciples now about dying, dying on the cross. He's about to leave them. You know, he's going to die the next day. And now he says, peace I give to you. What does he mean by that? He's giving them his last will and testament. The secret of this verse is Jesus leaving them peace in his will. <laughs> we all know that things you leave in your will don't go on to your loved ones until you die. And unless you understand the peace of Christ comes only because he died for you, it's completely wrapped up in his death upon the cross. It's the legacy of his death until you see his peace can you only be left by, with a dying Christ. You're never going to understand that peace. Because Christian peace is not just subjective, it's objective as well. Christian peace is based on the fact that Jesus truly died, paid every debt that I owe, fulfilled every requirement before the Father. Christian peace is based on that. He's given you a clear deed and title to be adopted into his family. You're his. So how does that work out in our lives? Well, Paul does it in Romans 8. He takes that truth and goes, drills it into his soul. I encourage you this afternoon, in your prayer closet, go in there and read Romans 8, all of it, all of it. One to the end of the chapter. He's drilling it down into his soul. And what you'll find is you'll get pumped in who you are in Christ. Verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And it gets better than that if you read the next verses. It's emotional. And it's as if Paul is screaming if God is for us, who can be against us? If God has made me acceptable, who is to condemn? Who shall separate me from the love of God in Christ? Anything I do, anything that happens to me, nakedness, peril, sword, famine, nothing. In all these things, I am more than conqueror. All he's doing is yelling, <laughs> you know. He is working subjectively out. The truth was objectively there, true. Okay? 
Does your heart act like that? When you come to those cries in the New Testament, does your heart cry out like that? Young people, when you're in the Word, do you, does your heart spring to joy like that? If not, you don't understand the peace of God. A Christian heart says, shut up, heart. All your guilt and your performance-based anxiety will never be my peace. The Christian heart says, shut up, world. With all your opinion and fashion-changing trends, you'll never be my peace. The heart turns around and says to death, shut up, death. Spare not, do thy worst. Come and get me. No, wait until you see what happens. A Christian peace arises under the death of Christ. Until you see he died for you. Until you see you build your life on the fact that he died for you. Until he's your dying savior, not your moral example. Not just some good person to follow. No, you'll never know that peace. Ever know that peace. This is the solution to our societal anxiety. Trusting in the cross. And then you look closely. How does that peace grow? Because some may be thinking to themselves, well, I understand that, but I don't know that I have that much peace. You know, you know I actually you know, still have a lot of fears, Gene. Well, don't forget verse 26. What does verse 26 say? But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I've said to you. You have Jesus in you. You have the Father in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have it all that you need, my friends. And if you want to deal with this, let the Holy Spirit drill this down into your soul. So if you want to do that, by the way, go to Romans 8, sit down, open it up, and the first thing you do is say, Holy Spirit, speak to me. Come. Unless the Holy Spirit opens my heart and warms my heart, so the realities I see here, I'm not going to find this peace that I desire. Because it can only come from the Holy Spirit showing me Jesus Christ, because that's the Holy Spirit's job. The worst thing you could possibly do is to say to yourself, oh, just suck it up. Pull yourself up. Pull yourself together, man. That's exactly what a person who is full of fear can't do. That's psychologically unhealthy to tell someone, suck it up. Pull yourself together. Jesus never said that. Instead, he says, open my words, seek my spirit, and I will drill my peace down to your bones. So go to Romans 8, and like Paul, deal with your fears by working out the truth of what Jesus has said. He's drilling it into himself in Romans 8. It's beautiful. If Jesus has done this, what am I afraid of? 
That's exactly what he does. Will you let the Holy Spirit lead you through that? And if you lack peace today, I want to challenge you. There are several reasons why you might lack peace. First, some within the sound of my voice may say to themselves, I don't need God. I don't read the Bible. So you're disobeying what he says. And the Spirit's fear-killing work can never happen in your life. Work can never happen because it's the Spirit's job to show you what Jesus says. And that includes his commands. If you have bad conscience, no wonder you're afraid. Secondly, some of you may know intellectually you're forgiven, but you just think, you know, God, you, you don't, I've messed up too bad. I'm way too bad. God just can't take me. When you say that, when you say I'm such a bad person, what you're saying is, Lord, I don't need your grace. He comes to you with grace. Like I said last week, he knows you're a failure. I'm the captain failure. I ought to have a t-shirt, captain failure. All right? I say, welcome to the club. God said to Peter, what I have made pure, do not call impure. You might be thinking you're impure. Jesus said, ah, 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 ah. trust me. And third, you may be lacking peace because you just don't spend any time in God's word. You don't spend any time in prayer. You think the Holy Spirit is going to work if you don't give him any time? When you say, I don't need to spend time in the word, I don't need your grace, I don't need fellowship with you, you're not going to have the peace that surpasses all understanding because that's where the fear came from to start with. You're doing it that way, the world's way, not God's way. No, friends, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to drill that grace and love down into your very soul and let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. For Jesus' peace is given to you. And we'll come back next year and we'll have some more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your table this morning, we want to see you anew with great peace. And we confess to you that we want your peace as we eat and drink this morning. We thank you as we come to the communion table that that's the place through your word, to get the peace of the Lord. And that's what we ask for today. We ask for peace with you. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would take these truths and sink deep into our souls, and they would become part of us. And we ask, Lord, as we take the cup and the bread, as we, that we would find we have taken you. And we've received your peace that was gifted to us through your death, which we today, this morning, and now commemorate. So we ask you, Lord, to change us all for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.